This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Merry Christmas to you. By now, all the presents are opened. All the energy and effort you put into selecting and purchasing and wrapping and hyping up those presents, all the hours that have gone into that process, it's over in a matter of minutes. The the living room looks like a wasteland with tumbleweeds of wrapping paper rolling across the room, right? Uh, all of it's over. And it's a very common experience to have a little bit of a letdown after the presents are opened to say, is this all there is? And the good news is there is so much more. And our guest today posits that a deeper understanding of the true meaning of Christmas can help mitigate some of those feelings of letdown. So we're talking today with Dr. Michael Barber, Associate Professor of Scripture and Theology at the Augustine Institute in Denver, Colorado. And he's written this beautiful book called The True Meaning of Christmas, The Birth of Jesus and the Origins of the Season. It's co-published by Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute, available wherever fine books are sold. This book is not your popular level book uh, in, in one sense, because it's not just a series of little meditations. This is what I like to call accessible scholarship. Uh, it's well-cited, but it's very accessible. If you, if you don't have any academic background, you can read this and get so much from the biblical studies that are presented in this book. Uh, but if you want to go deeper, well, all of the sources are cited. All of the, the Greek words are there and then transliterated for you so that you can understand it. And it delves in so much uh, to the scriptures to help unpack them for you so that you can now, next time you go through and you're reading these readings that we hear all the time, you can have some extra insight. And so I'm so thrilled uh, to welcome you back, Dr. Barber. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, TL, for having me here. It's great to be with you. One of the things that I love, uh, I always like to go through and look at the chapter titles and see how how creative has the, the author and the editorial team been. And I love that in this one, you're unpacking the incarnation through the clever use of uh, uh, carol lyrics, right? Christmas carols. And I'm a big Christmas carol person. So I really appreciated that first and foremost. Well, that was something that was really important to me. I'm a, I'm a lover of Christmas and I listen to Christmas music uh, throughout the season. I know that for a lot of people, some of the things in the Bible may be a little bit unfamiliar until you realize you sing about it all the time. So what I wanted to do was start with what was familiar. So round yon virgin, what, what does that mean? We say it all the time. Why is it so important that the mother of the Messiah is a virgin? So every chapter, in fact, takes its departure from the words of a familiar Christmas song, I'll Be Home for Christmas is the first chapter, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is the second chapter, and so on and so forth. And what I want to do is really address those things that people often ask about where they don't stop to think about enough things like why is it that Christmas has its origins in Jewish hopes. Uh, what was it that first century Jews were looking forward to? That's the first major chapter of the book. 
Who is Gabriel? Why is he so important to the story? What were what what did ancient Jews know about the archangel Gabriel? How do we recognize him from the Old Testament? What is the story of his appearance to Zechariah and then to Mary show us in the New Testament? And so on and so forth. So why is Jesus laid in a manger? Away in a manger. No room in you know, no no place in the inn. What does that mean? The, the inn is there some kind of hotel Bethlehem with like a no vacancy <laughs> sign in the window, you know? Now, well, what about all the other things that we are familiar with from the Christmas story? The hark, the herald angels sing. You know, who are they? These angels that are out there—they're not named Harold. I'll tell you that. Right. <laughs> uh, who are these angels? Why are they called a host? Uh, what does that mean? Are they entertaining people at a party? Um, what about the Magi? Who are these guys? Why do we call them kings? Why do we always see them associated with camels? There are no camels in the biblical story. Uh, what about the Christmas star? Is that some kind of like alignment of Jupiter and Mars and the age of Aquarius or you know something yeah. like that? What's going on there? And then other things outside of the Bible, the customs that we are so familiar with actually have really neat origins but a lot of the things people have heard about these things about these customs actually is usually unreliable why do we have christmas trees why do we light christmas lights on why do we put christmas lights on our house how did saint nicholas become santa claus how did december 25th become christmas those are the kinds of things that i wanted to look at in the book but again i wanted to make it accessible like you said so we did get john cavadini who's a noted scholar and theologian who's professor at notre dame uh, to write the forward for the book but again trying to do it in a way that will make sense to just about everyone catholic non-catholic this is a book that will help anyone enter into the joy of the christmas season and really understand what it's all about so i'm going to start with um with chapter seven, the away in a manger, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, because we have this very rehearsed narrative of of what the story looked like that we mm-hmm. we know it so well that we haven't taken the time to get to know it. And right, you've got the the donkey, and you've got the the oxen, and you you have the um, the little stable. We build it in our front yard every year, right? And we've all of our all of our various uh, creches have have that stable. And if you ask someone to tell you the story of Jesus' birth, the stable is going to make an appearance. And I first saw this, I think, on social media a few years ago saying, well, no, it it probably wasn't a stable at all. It was, uh, you know, it's not the hotel. It's the the guest room that, that there is a word for a hotel, as we would kind of understand it, uh, and that's not the word that the gospel writers used. They used this different word, which would be like the guest room. And so my first thought was seeing this scholar, <clears throat> it made a lot of sense, but at the same time, it was not a Catholic scholar. And so I'm like, well, how do you mesh that with the church of the nativity if this specific view of the manger is true? And you you address both of those. So uh, for those who haven't seen this piece that I found on Facebook ages ago, what is this that you're telling us that there might be no stable? Right. So let's get into that. This is one of my favorite chapters in the book, if not my favorite chapter in the book. And it, on one hand, does something that I think is really important. I want to do historical critical study. I want to be re- responsible as a historian, as a Bible scholar. And so sometimes when you do that, you you in 
you look at things that people traditionally associate with a narrative and you say, well, that's not exactly what Luke is saying. People get frustrated and they say, oh, you're, you're myth busting. I want to just enjoy Christmas the way I, you know, <laughs> I, I'm comfortable with enjoying Christmas. But see, the thing is, I also want to do scholarship that will ultimately enrich people's faith. So yeah. I'm not interested in myth busting just for the sake of myth busting. And so this is a really great example of what I'm trying to do in the book. So let's get to that story of Jesus's birth and him being laid in a manger. Okay, so uh, we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that Mary laid the child in a manger. The Greek word there is phatne, because there was no room for them in the now, most English translations say the inn. This is like the King James Version. It's right. very common. All right. Well, first of all, she laid him in a manger. Okay. What is that? It's a feeding trough. As scholars like Raymond Brown show, the Greek word fatne here probably means something like the box or the place where they would put the hay or the feed for the animal. So the Christ child goes where the food goes, right? The manger. And why do they do that? Because there's no room in the inn is the common translation. Now, the problem with that is it makes it sound like there's some kind of Hotel Bethlehem, right? It makes it sound like there's this innkeeper and he's going to look for a room. There's no room in the inn. Okay, room three, no, Hezekiah staying there. Uh, room nine, uh, no, uh, Jeconiah is staying in there. You know, we, we don't have any rooms uh, for you, Mary and Joseph. Uh, you're going to have to go outside. And the idea is, you know, you get this heartless innkeeper who turns away this woman who's about to give birth. In a lot of the ways the story is presented, Mary is pregnant and she's going into labor the night they get into Bethlehem, right? And they're, they're scrambling to find accommodations in Bethlehem. Now, none of that is in the gospel story of Luke. We don't read about them going from inn to inn, looking for a place to stay. And I'm often concerned about the way that this is going to get presented because, you know, this idea of this cruel obviously Jewish innkeeper plays mm. into some anti-Semitic stereotypes that are actually quite scary. And, you know, a lot of biblical scholarship uh, was pioneered by Germans in the 1800s. And in fact, in the 1800s, there was a lot of latent anti-Semitism in that kind of German biblical milieu. Uh, and you, you'll see this throughout, you know, interpretations that maybe we've received and we're not even you know, critical of, like, for example, there's that uh, interpretation of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish, right? That, well, Jesus is really all about sharing. And right. A miracle isn't what happened, right? It's not about a miracle. It's about sharing. Now, John Chrysostom a long time ago pointed out that there's a lesson here about sharing. But the whole idea that it's not a miracle, that it's just about sharing, that goes back to a German scholar, Heinrich Paulus, in the 1800s, who was actually a deist, and he was also pretty anti-Semitic. What's the whole subtext, right? The whole subtext is Jews are selfish and greedy, and we have to find a way to teach them how to share, right? That's the idea. It's, it's pretty frightening. Uh, and, and actually, that's not the message at all. It's not that all Jews are selfish. No, Jesus is performing a miracle here, and he is teaching a lesson for sharing, but it's one, of course, that we can all learn. It's not something like, oh, only Jews are, are selfish or something like that. Well, there is no heartless Jewish innkeeper in the story of Luke's gospel, people have read that into the story. 
that there is an inn in the Gospel of Luke. It's found in the story of the Good Samaritan, yeah. right? In that story, there's a man who's beaten. He's left for dead on the side of the road. And the Good Samaritan ultimately comes, puts him on his donkey, and leads him to an inn. There, again, most likely a Jewish innkeeper. But this time, uh, in the biblical story, he's kind, and he's willing to take care of the man and let the Good Samaritan come back and cover his expenses whenever he comes back into town. And that's 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 what he does. He takes in this, this beaten man. The Greek word is pandokion. That's the word for in. That's not the word that's found in Luke's narrative. And scholars, I'm thinking you probably saw Stephen Carlson, mm -hmm. who's an excellent scholar. Uh, he wrote a great article on this. I quoted in my book or I cited in my book uh, where he shows that the word that's translated in in Luke 2 is kataluma. Okay, it means not in, but room. So I like to translate that, and I use all my own Bible translations in this book um, because I think that there are a lot of problems with the standard <laughs> translations. Yeah. So uh, in Luke 2, 7, I translate it, they laid him in a manger because there was no space for them in the room. Now, people say, oh, well, now you're just blowing up my traditional understanding <laughs> of the whole Christmas story, and you know how does that help? No, it's really important, and here is why, okay? Just hang with me, hang with me here. The word that's translated room, kataluma, in the story is the same word that occurs later in Luke's narrative where Jesus is about to enter into the Paschal mystery, right? Yeah. He sends the apostles into the city of Jerusalem to prepare the Passover. And they say, where should we prepare the Passover? And Jesus explains to them, they're going to go into the city, they're going to meet a man, and they're going to go and they're going to talk to him and he will show them a room that's already been prepared. The room, that's the same word that's translated the kataluma, right? In, in, in Luke's infancy story, in the story of Jesus's birth. And this is the upper room. And what happens in that upper room? Jesus breaks the bread, he blesses it, breaks bread, gives it to his disciples. And he said, he says, take this, all of you eat. It. This is my body. So what happens in the upper room? In the room, Jesus reveals himself to be our food. Mm -hmm. So now you see something really interesting with the, with the Christmas story. He's put where the food goes. Why? Because he can't be in the room because there is no space in the room. But then when Jesus is in the room later in Luke's gospel, what happens? He reveals that he is our food. And so the church fathers like Jerome love to point out the significance of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Of course, Bethlehem was the place where David was born, and so it was appropriate for the Messiah to be born there, as we see in Matthew's gospel. But as Jerome points out, Bethlehem is made up of two words, Beth, meaning house, and Lechem, meaning bread. So Jesus is born in the house of bread. And all of this points forward to the Eucharist. So what we see in the manger is a prefigurement of the Eucharistic mystery that Christ will inaugurate in the upper room. In other words, every Eucharist, every Mass is a little Christmas, mm -hmm. right? Because what happened at Christmas, Christ comes to us in the house of bread, Christ comes to us as food is made present. And so every time we celebrate the Eucharist, what do we do? We sing glory to God in the highest. Guess where we got that song? 
Yeah. It's from Luke's account of Jesus's birth. When heaven touched down to earth in Bethlehem, angels sung glory to God in the highest. And every time we celebrate the Eucharist, the church understands that same savior comes to us. Heaven touches down to earth again in our presence. And we sing the song, the angels sang glory to God in the highest. And we receive the one who is the bread from heaven. Well, that, that's a, practically a homily here. I mean, <laughs> we're talking today with Dr. Michael Barber. The book is The True Meaning of Christmas. You can get it now for a while. It, it may still be. It was trending number one on Amazon. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Now, um, we have this picture that you, you are kind of upending of, you know, the, mm. the dark, maybe even a dark and stormy night as you've got people who have been weary on a journey, knocking from door to door. Um and now they're banished to the the manger, to the stable, or as tradition often says, to the cave. And of course, we have the Church of the Nativity that is is situated over this cave. What are we to make of this when the the tradition that we practice and that we've seen doesn't match up with some of what we we think that we're hearing from biblical scholarship? What does that mean? Yeah. For so us? what we see is that, um, of course, okay. The tradition that emerges very early, already in the 100s, we see that Christians in Bethlehem believe that Jesus was born in a cave. And in fact, uh, they mark that spot as a sacred place. Well, later on, the Romans would take sites. We know they would take sites like where the Jewish temple was, and they would build pagan sites on places that were important, that were holy to Jews and to Christians. And so they build a temple to Jupiter, where the Jerusalem temple used to be in Jerusalem. And they happen to build a pagan shrine in Bethlehem. And actually, this is helpful historically, because in a way, the Romans helped mark the spot that was important to the early Christians. And so there later is a church built in Bethlehem by Constantine, uh, called the Church of the Nativity that's built in the 300s. And there's really good evidence to think that, in fact, that church stands on the site that the earliest Christians understood Jesus to be born at. Now, it's amazing. You can go to that church today. And by the way, the church survived kind of by a, a way of a miracle. So what happened was now Muslim invaders came to the Holy Land. They came to Bethlehem. They came to Jerusalem. They destroyed lots of churches. And they went into the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. And when they went in there, they saw these mosaics. They saw in particular one mosaic of the three magi. And the magi were dressed like Persians, which is where these invaders were from. Because, of course, Matthew tells us the Magi came from the east, and there was a tradition that the Magi were Arabs. And so when the invaders looked up, they saw their ancestors depicted in the church, and they thought, you know what? Let's leave this one alone. And so the Church of the Nativity stands to this day. You can go to Jerusalem, I mean, you can go to Bethlehem and see the Church of the Nativity. And one of the amazing things is if you go down underneath to where the traditional site is of Jesus's birth. And you'll see this place where Jesus is thought to be originally born. And you can go and explore right around that area in the church, right next to it. There are all these caves and this matches up with what early Christian sources tell us that the early Christians believed Jesus was built or Jesus was born in a cave. And in fact, 
we know that Palestinian houses in the first century often were built out of caves. So it, it's not un, it's not totally un, um, or implausible or unlikely that this tradition actually has some historical merit. Jordan Ryan, who's a great uh, archaeologist, has a book out, and I cite it in the book, where, where he looks at some of the evidence here. And in fact, the early Christian iconography will often depict Jesus born in a cave. So if, if you look at the earliest icons of Jesus's birth, you'll see a cave, right? Mm-hmm. Not a, a stable as, as we as we have it today. And the early Christians saw this as really significant because the cave in which Jesus is born in sort of anticipates the cave in which he'll be buried in. It's not the same cave. They didn't mm-hmm. think Jesus was buried in Bethlehem, but they thought that the imagery was appropriate, right? It bookends to the story, cave at Jesus' birth, cave at Jesus' death. Well, in the 13th, In the 13th century, so in the 1200s, Francis of Assisi wanted to remind the church of the poverty of Christ. And, of course, at that time, there was a lot of wealth in the church. It was appropriate to highlight the humble circumstances into which Jesus came into the world. And so what Francis did is he set up the original Manger scene. So the practice of manger scenes goes all the way back to Francis of Assisi. And there are a lot of legends about Francis, a lot of things that are actually not true, things that are attributed to him that are false. But this is actually rooted in history, and historians uh, will will say, yep, this, this does bear out. This seems very likely. And so when Francis sets up the manger scene, he does something interesting. In the manger scene, he puts an ox and a donkey. Now, why does he put an ox and a donkey? It's not found in the biblical story. Well, in the book of Isaiah, in the Greek version, in the Septuagint uh, version of Isaiah, in the first chapter, we read, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows the manger, thotne, same word for the manger in the Christmas story, The ox knows the manger of its Lord. Of course, that's a word that's used for Christ in the Christmas story. But Israel has not known me. All right, so the ox knows its owner, the donkey knows the manger. Early Christian writers, very early Christian writers, saw in this passage a prefigurement of the story of the nativity. And so early church fathers like Jerome cite this passage and they say why in a manger that the prophecy of isaiah might be fulfilled the manger of the lord right Mm -hmm. and so francis understood that tradition of reading this passage of isaiah as a prophecy of jesus's birth and that's why he put an ox and a donkey in the manger scene and they've stuck to this day so we have the uh, ox and the donkey in our manger scenes even now well, that's and, where it comes from and in several of our christmas carols as well of yeah. course yeah silent night right so one of the other things that this brings up if if your reading is correct and and i tend to believe that it is um that that christ is born not in a stable and not uh far away, you know, he's not in an inn, in a commercial inn where there would be no one that they knew. If he's born in a guest room, all of a sudden there's a familial component that's injected into the story. And there's a certain level of isolation that we 
I, I think also might come from uh, an early anti-Semitic viewing uh, reading that mm-hmm. says, oh, well, the Savior comes and everyone puts him out and, and ostracizes him and, and doesn't want him near. If he's in a guest room or at least in the home, uh, now we have a whole familial component injected into this that says, well, he's nearby people who know him and, and love him. How does that change our understanding of the story? Right. So the idea is that there was no room in the Kataluma in the room, right? What is that? Well, it's like you said, like a guest room and first century Palestinian homes commonly would have a room for guests, right? And so what this shows us is that Christ is born in an ordinary first century Palestinian home, but that the home that Christ was born into didn't have a a guest room that was large enough to accommodate him. And so he's put, uh, Christ is born, not in that small little guest room. And obviously when children were born in the ancient world, it involved a lot of people. You'd have midwives, you'd have other people helping. So the idea is the guest room wouldn't have been big enough for everybody who would be there for the birth of the child. Um, But the key thing that we want to underscore here is that, of course, Christ is born in the humblest of circumstances. There weren't the, you know, a lavish, there wasn't a lavish reception for the one who most deserved a royal if you will, welcome into, into life on earth. And this points to the humility of Christ in the message that's really at the heart of the Christmas story. That is the same message Paul talks about in Philippians 2, that Christ humbled himself, that he emptied himself and came down and he became human. And he then he goes on, of course, Paul goes on to explain how Christ even died on a cross, right? The worst kind of death in first century Greco-Roman culture. So here we see the humility of God. God loves us so dearly that he is willing to come down from heaven, but not just become man. He's willing to be born in the humblest of circumstances. And I love it. John Cavadini, who's the great you know scholar, theologian, writes the forward for the book. He points to this great passage in the early Christian writer Origen's works, where Origen marvels, not just that God would become man, but that God would become an infant and make the sounds that other infants make. God himself is willing to take that form is willing to become a child for us to show us the lengths to which he will go to save us. And so ultimately Christmas reveals the love of God who humbles himself and is born and invites us to become like him. So he humbled himself so that we could be made like him. That's really a beautiful lesson. That's at the heart of the story. We're talking today with Dr. Michael Barber of the Augustine Institute about his new book, The True Meaning of Christmas, The Birth of Jesus and the Origins of the Season. And we've only just scratched the surface. There's much more to this conversation just on the other side of this break. So don't go anywhere, but do come to our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. Talk to me a little bit about your Christmas traditions, but don't touch that dial because there is much more right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Dr. Michael Barber from the Augustan Institute out in Denver, Colorado, about his new book, The True Meaning of Christmas. It's available right now on Ignatius Press and uh, co-released with Augustan Institute as well. You can find it on Amazon, uh, at at the Ignatius website, wherever fine books are sold. Dr. Barber, thanks for being with us again today. Thanks so much for having me here. It's great to talk about Christmas. So here we are. We're on December 25th. Most people have just now celebrated the um, the cultural, uh, really the American cultural experience of, of Santa Claus. Um, how did we get from the manger to St. Nicholas and to now our understanding of St. Nicholas as Santa Claus? Yeah, it's really important. I think a lot of people who are people of faith see Santa Claus as some kind of enemy to the true meaning of Christmas. And I'm just not convinced, um, at least not of Santa Claus as I've come to research him and study him. So where is Santa Claus coming to us from? Well, originally Santa Claus is Santa Saint Claus. It's from Nicholas, right? And Nicholas was a bishop in the early church, Bishop of Myra. And what ends up happening is, uh, now, there are two different Nicholases in the early church, Nicholas of Sion and Nicholas of Myra, and the stories of the two of them get kind of confused, and the earliest writings, uh, or at least our earliest sources about Nicholas, uh, the Nicholas we're interested in is the Nicholas of Myra, take some poetic license. In fact, there are some people who have argued that, well, there was no Nicholas at all. That doesn't seem likely. Adam English is a scholar, historian, has done a lot of work here, and he shows, no, there was likely a Nicholas of Myra. We do want to be careful about recognizing that our sources are, are rather late about him, and they do take some poetic license. But nonetheless, um, there there really seemed to have been a Nicholas who was bishop. He becomes known as a saint. And in the earliest account of his life that we have, there's a, a wonderful story of him as a gift giver. And what happens is, and I'll keep the story G-rated for radio, <laughs> uh, what happens is Nicholas has a neighbor who becomes destitute. Nicholas is from a wealthy family, but Nicholas knows the scriptures and knows the dangers of wealth. And so he is detached from his own wealth that he received from his parents when they died. Nobody knows that he has this enormous wealth because he lives so simply. He goes on and becomes a priest. His neighbor is destitute. He has three daughters. He's in dire circumstances. And so Nicholas finds out and goes in the middle of the night over to this man's house and he throws into the man's window a bag of sil- a bag of gold coins. And the man wakes up the next day and realizes that somebody has done this great act for him. He's able to feed his family. And part of his situation is he's poor. And so he's unable to marry off his daughters because he needs to provide a dowry for them. He marries off his first daughter. He gets some food for the rest of the family. Nicholas sees this the next night. He goes over, does it again. Man repeats. But this time he's determined to figure out who his anonymous benefactor is. And so he waits up all night, bleary eyed. and looks to see who it is who is funding his family's, um, you know, uh, uh, marriages and allowing them to eat. 
Sure enough, Nicholas comes in the middle of the night. Guy jumps out in the dark, attacks him, tries to, you know, catch him. And he doesn't attack him, but he wants to, you know, figure out who he is. And he realizes, oh, my goodness, it's the priest Nicholas. And Nicholas makes him promise not to tell anyone what he has done. And the whole point of the story is that Nicholas exemplifies the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But when you give alms, you should not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You should give in secret so your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so by the 11th century, French nuns are leaving gifts for poor children on the Feast of St. Nicholas, December 6th, and they're writing notes attributing the gifts to St. Nicholas. Why? Because the nuns understand that to give in a Christian way is, as one scholar puts it, to be a secret Santa, right? <laughs> we, we, don't want, we don't want people to know what we have done for them. And so they use St. Nicholas as a sort of mask, as a sort of a way of giving without identifying themselves. And of course, in a way, you could say that Nicholas is the inspiration, is an example for this. Well, by the 1800s, Christmas had become a sort of a kind of sordid affair in places like America. See, Protestants were unwilling to adopt a liturgical calendar because, you know, the Bible alone doesn't tell us when Jesus is born. And so in a lot of places, Christmas meant churches were closed, but people still wanted to celebrate. And so what they would do is they'd go out into to the streets and they would revel, they would party, they would get drunk, they would even assault people. And people in, in, in places like America, like New York, there was a man named John Pinter, a Protestant, but he recognized this is not the way that we ought to celebrate. And so he decided that it would be important to promote this great saint, St. Nicholas. John Pintard was a very well-to-do, influential New Yorker in the 1800s. He was the founder of the New York Historical Society. And so one year at their annual gala, he decided to celebrate on the Feast of St. Nicholas, and he had this huge portrait of Nicholas commissioned, and he talked a lot about Nicholas. And who is he? Well, he's this great example of a Christian saint and a, a man who taught us how to give in, in, in secret, right? And it was very long after this that other New Yorkers picked up on this idea of promoting Nicholas and his example, and they did so in their own whimsical ways. One of uh, John Pintard's close friends was the very influential American writer, Washington Irving. Yeah. Of course, it was Washington Irving who had a huge impact on Charles Dickens, who writes The Christmas Carol. That's another story we could discuss at a different time. But what happens is Washington Irving starts writing stories about St. Nicholas in his own kind of silly way. Nicholas appears and he's smoking a pipe, right? A saint smoking a pipe, kind of silly. And he tells a story of how Nicholas comes with gifts. And this story ends up getting, you know, elaborated. And there's a poem that's submitted to a, a, a newspaper uh, that is submitted anonymously. People came to attribute it to Clement Clark, although it may, or Clement Clark Moore, although it may have been written by somebody else. Scholars are unsure. It's the story we know today as was the night before Christmas, originally is called A Visit from St. Nick. And what happens in that story is, of course, St. Nicholas comes not on the Feast of St. Nicholas, 
but on Christmas. And where does he go? To people's homes. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of the culmination of things that were happening at this time. To help people recognize the best place to celebrate wasn't in the street, wasn't partying with other adults, but gathering around the hearth with, with with your family. Celebrating Christmas in the warmth of the presence of your loved ones. It was a very beautiful way to help Christmas really be recognized as not just a time for partying, but as the poignant season that it is. And I love telling the story because it was Protestants. Typically, Protestants aren't known for loving saints, but it was Protestants in America who came to recognize that if we're going to celebrate Christmas for all it's worth, we need an example, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the whole story of Christmas. Christ comes as our Savior, Again, to make us like himself. And so we have the model of a saint, Nicholas, who shows us what it means to give in a truly Christian manner. And that's how St. Nicholas becomes Santa Claus. It wasn't long before people were getting Santa costumes. And, And in the early days, you couldn't get a Santa costume from anywhere. You could only get it from a religious supply store because the place you would normally find Santa Claus wasn't in a department store, but at churches, right? It was only later that department stores started to see in Santa Claus a way to sell gifts. And of course it can be commercialized and cheapened and that all that. But the really beautiful thing is here we have a saint who teaches us what it means and what it looks like to become like Christ. So in our last couple of minutes here, uh, we've talked about uh, unpacking the, the tradition of Scripture. We've talked a little bit about unpacking the tradition of St. Nicholas. Do you have a specific family tradition of how mm-hmm. you celebrate Christmas that you'd like to share with us today? Well, our my favorite way to celebrate Christmas is, of course, going to Mass together. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the, really at the heart of Christmas. What is it? Christ's mass, right? It's funny. People say, don't take Christ out of Christmas. Don't take Christ out of Christmas. Well, you know, there's another word in Christmas. (laughs) Mass, right? Actually, people say, is it really that simple? Yeah, it really is that simple. Christmas means Christ's mass. It goes back to Middle English. People like in England today will still celebrate Michaelmas. That's the Feast of St. Michael, the Mass of St. Michael, or Candlemas. That's uh, another special feast to talk about in my book, for example, uh, related to the story of the presentation of Jesus. But I think the best way to celebrate Christmas is to go to Mass. And we love to get all dressed up and make a big deal out of it. The girls get special dresses, you know, and really it highlights what is most important. And that is Christ continues to come to us, as I said before, as the bread from heaven to give him to give of himself to us as our food and that's really at the heart of the christmas story and the christmas celebration the book is the true meaning of christmas the birth of jesus the origins of the season published co-published by ignatius press and the augustine institute as we've been talking today with dr michael barber from the augustine institute dr barber it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today have a merry christmas Thank you so much for having me here. It's been a delight, TL. God bless you and Merry Christmas. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Barber or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. If you make it all the way through the archives and you just can't get enough, well, I've got good news. There is more. 
Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available to our Patreon support community. That community helps keep us on the air each and every week. And in gratitude, we give them extra content. If you'd like to learn more or potentially join that community, simply go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the link in the top right-hand corner of the page that says Patreon hyphen support the show. Now, if this afternoon you're scrolling Facebook or Twitter and you want a little bit of something extra to do, come by and visit me on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. And tell me a little bit about your Christmas traditions. Maybe something that you do on Christmas Day or maybe something through the rest of the octave all the way up to uh, to Epiphany. If you have something that you traditionally do by yourself as a family, extended family, I want to hear about it. Uh, so Dr. Barber just told us his his tradition is going to Mass with his family. Uh, of course, we're going to do that as well. But one of my traditions that that my family does, we've just probably done it for the last few years, maybe four years now, that I have come to love is a is a Christmas party during the octave. We call it this year. It's the third day of Christmas carol sing. And what we're going to do is we invite a couple of different families over. We all bring our leftover Christmas goodies and do kind of a potluck there. We provide some drinks and, uh, and then we all go into the music room and we just sing Christmas carols until we can't do it anymore. Uh, and we throw the lyrics up on the TV because, you know, that way everyone's on the same page. I don't have to have a million hymnals. We throw the lyrics up on the TV and we pull out the guitar. We have the piano. We've got a little pump organ that we purchased here recently. And we just sing Christmas carols till our heart's content. And it is a blast. There's something so rich about Christmas carols because they they rehearse for us again the story of the incarnation from a number of different perspectives. Um, and, and I just can't recommend highly enough uh, the practice of singing Christmas carols. You know, growing up, I grew up Protestant, and we would sing these Christmas carols through the whole season of Advent and then all the way through Christmas. And so we had multiple weeks singing this. And when I became Catholic, uh, the parishes that I went to, they they don't sing Christmas carols in, in Advent, which is absolutely the appropriate thing, right? We're going to really participate in Advent during Advent. Uh, but I found that I just really missed those multiple weeks of singing Christmas carols because you get one or two weeks and then it's done. And so probably halfway, about five years into being Catholic, we're like, you know what? If we can't sing the carols at church, we are just going to do it on our own. And so have that little community time where we invite people in. And that's probably right now uh, my current favorite Christmas tradition. I want to hear about your current favorite Christmas tradition. So make sure you pop over, over to facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handles at outside the walls. Let me know what yours is. And you'll also find a link, uh, on the evening of the third evening. Now I'm in Pacific time. So the time's going to be a little bit later for you, but at 6 PM Pacific on the third day of Christmas, uh, we're going to do a, a live stream at facebook.com slash step outside the walls where we're going to invite you into our living room uh, to participate in the third day of Christmas carol sing party. It's going to be just like you were here, except you don't get to partake of the Christmas goodies. So um, we would love to have you come and be a part of that and share in that tradition with our family. 
Now let's go ahead and and segue. Let's turn our attention to our readings uh, from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium right at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, to commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more by visiting Verbum.com. And now through the end of the year, all of the libraries are 25% off. So now is a great time to go and look and see what library best fits your devotional and study needs. Again, you can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today, we're going to pull it from the Midnight Mass because there's four different possibilities of hearing the, the words of the story of our Christmas story, depending on what time you go to Mass. And Midnight Mass is always the one that that we go to as a family because it, it just suits us, I think. And the other thing that we do, uh, we read this same passage, this uh, the Gospel from Luke uh, telling the story. We read this before we open presents, much to the chagrin of, of the littlest ones who don't quite get why we're doing this yet. But we always start our Christmas morning hearing again the story, the reason that we're doing all this. And so hear the words of the Gospel of St. Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. We heard it at Midnight Mass And you also hear it, speaking of Christmas traditions, if you watch a Charlie Brown Christmas special, right? Uh, This is such a beautiful reading. I'm very fond of it, perhaps because it was tradition in my house growing up when I was a child, to hear this story before we got to the presence. And and it just is so striking. Uh, And for me today, it's so striking for two specific reasons. One, it re-highlights for us the humility of God, that he would condescend to us to leave his throne in heaven, to make himself lowly for the purpose of being near to us. He, he not only 
Not only did he become human, he became an infant. Not only did he become an infant that was born, he became an infant that was gestated in his mother's womb. He became the the smallest and most vulnerable thing that we can imagine. He who is God of the universe, uh, he who is infinite and all-powerful, gave up that power and limited himself to this human form, all for the purpose of bringing you and me and all of those who share in our humanity back into relationship with him. Or as St. Athanasius said, God became man so that man might become God. Or as St. Peter said in Second Peter in his epistle, he says uh, that, that Jesus uh, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers in the divine nature. So this is, the, the I think, the more amazing thing of the, the Christmas story is not just that God became man, not just that God became man so that he might be Emmanuel, God with us, not just because he is completing his promise that he made over and over throughout Scripture, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell among you, but that he did this so as to make our natures compatible, so that he could bring us to a place where we share in his nature. He took on our nature so that we could participate and share in his nature. And this is something that I still can't wrap my head around. So to try and get a better understanding of it, let's now go to the fathers. Let's hear from a sermon by St. Leo the Great. Although the state of infancy, which the majesty of the Son of God did not disdain to assume, developed with the passage of time into the maturity of manhood, and although after the triumph of the Passion and the Resurrection all his lowly acts undertaken on our behalf belong to the past, nevertheless, today's Feast of Christmas renews for us the sacred beginning of Jesus' life, his birth from the Virgin Mary. In the very act in which we are reverencing the birth of our Savior, we are also celebrating our own new birth, for the birth of Christ is the origin of the Christian people, and the birthday of the head is also the birthday of the body. Though each and every individual occupies a definite place in this body to which he has been called, and though all the progeny of the church is differentiated and marked with a passage of time, nevertheless, as the whole community of the faithful, once begotten in the baptismal font, was crucified with Christ in the Passion, raised up with him in the resurrection, and at the ascension placed at the right hand of the Father, so too it is born with him in this nativity, which we are celebrating today. For every believer regenerated in Christ, no matter in what part of the world he may be, breaks with that ancient way of life that derives from original sin and by rebirth is transformed into a new man. Henceforth, he is reckoned to be of the stock, not of his earthly father, but of Christ, 
who became the Son of Man precisely that men could become sons of God. For unless in humility he had come down to us, none of us by our own merits could ever go up to him. Therefore, the greatness of the gift which he has bestowed on us demands an appreciation proportioned to its excellence. For blessed Paul the Apostle truly teaches we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. The only way that he can be worthily honored by us is by the presentation to him of that which he has already given to us. But what can we find in the treasure of the Lord's bounty, more in keeping with the glory of this feast than that peace which was first announced by the angelic choir on the day of his birth? For that peace from which the sons of God spring sustains love and mother's unity. It refreshes the blessed and shelters eternity. Its characteristic function and special blessing is to join to God those whom it separates from this world. Therefore, may those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, offer to the Father their harmony as sons united in peace. And may all those whom he has adopted as his members meet in the firstborn of the new creation, who came not to do his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. For the grace of the Father has adopted as heirs neither the contentious nor the dissident, but those who are one in thought and love, the hearts and minds of those who have been reformed according to one and the same image should be in harmony with one another. The birthday of the Lord is the birthday of peace. As Paul the Apostle says, For he is our peace, who has made us both one. For whether we be Jew or Gentile, through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. That reading comes from a sermon by St. Leo the Great. And as St. Leo closed, so also I close our show today. Uh, seek after the peace that comes at Christmas. If you have any anxiety at all, if there's anything that is causing you stress or concern, take it to God, take it to Christ. He who proclaimed peace through the angels wants also to proclaim that peace to you today. And I want to close with the words of the angels. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for spending your Christmas with me. Today's show is brought to you by Drs. Michael and Julie Highland and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing 
God alone suffices.